You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Michael C. Bryan, uh, part of the uh, Broadway Podcast Network. If you don't know about us, take a look up here. Uh, there's a lot of um, uh, tags on here. We're at Broadway Podcast Network or on Twitter or on Facebook. Um, you know, the, the work you do in- interests me. The, the way you get in there and the way you talk with people, the way you sort of figure out who they are and how you find an expression for that in terms of this format, I'm very interested to hear what you have to say. I, I think there's something here that's going to be different from what you're m- most often accustomed to. I feel there's an egoless way of, of something happening here today. So I'm very intrigued to see what you have to say about that because I think that's different than some of the stuff. I'm hearing calling, but I'd, I'd love to hear more calling and, and how you think it fits into what you're creating. Um, so if you have any questions afterwards, um, uh, my name is Michael. Hit me up and follow us on the Broadway Podcast Network. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. I'm Leah Walsh, and this is the Compass Podcast. We're so excited to be here at BroadwayCon. This is actually the 150th episode of the Compass Podcast, and it happens to line up with this uh, live episode, so it's a great way to celebrate. We're really happy to be here with um, the Broadway Podcast Network. And this podcast is all about uh, what artists do to keep from going to the dark side. And everyone seems to have an idea of what I mean when I say that. It's slightly different for everyone. But this is a really difficult profession. And I have all different types of artists on my podcast, not just actors or theater professionals. But um, there's a lot of issues in that area that don't get talked about enough. And it's really healthy to get out in the air and to say, I'm not the only one that feels this way. So that's kind of what our conversation is going to center on today. And my guest next to me here is Monik Choksi. Hello. <laughs> he is a dear Hi. friend. You may have seen him most recently on Broadway in Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. He's a wonderful oh, actor. <laughs> he's a fantastic musician. Um, yeah, and he's an old friend of mine from grad school, so I'm excited to talk with him today. So I always start the podcast with the same question, which is, what do you do to keep from going to the dark side as an artist? Yeah. Uh, well, hello there. Hello, everybody. Um, for me, the dark side as an artist feels like um, isolation and doubt and this feeling of, am I worthy to be speaking? Am I worthy to be making something worthy to be in this room with these people? Uh, and I can feel that feeling. I mean, I don't think anybody's ever going to get rid of that feeling, no matter how se- successful you are, there's always some moment of um, doubt that creeps in. Uh, doubt in myself, doubt in the circumstances that led me into this room. Uh, so to keep from going to the dark side these days is, uh, um, I guess, a little bit different than when I was younger. When, it w- when I was younger, I feel like to keep from going to the dark side, I needed some kind of uh, validation, whether it was from um, other people, or uh, getting a job, or getting into a program, you know? Um, but now I feel like uh, to keep from going to the dark side, the place of self-doubt, I have to sort of find it in, um, for lack of a better way to say it, myself, you know? I've got, I've got a young kid, and uh, she's two and a half, and she teaches me so much. But the way in which you see a child sort of uh, recklessly be themselves um, without, without apology, and why should they apologize? They're a beautiful human being trying to figure out the world, and the world is crazy. Uh, and I just feel like if my kid can go and dance in the middle of the library, 
why am I so nervous about dancing in front of Alex Timbers, you know? Um, am I afraid that he will think I'm not a good dancer, you know? When he asked you to dance? When he asked <laughs> me to come into the room and dance for him, you know? Uh, so I feel like to keep from going to the dark side is a practice of reminding myself that whatever doubt I feel creeping in is totally self-constructed based on my, you know, journey from birth to now, um, but ultimately is uh, only uh, important if it's useful, <laughs> you know? Maybe I doubt, like, standing up in the middle of a theater while a show is going on and screaming. Like, yeah, that's a good voice to listen to. But uh, if I'm doubting, do I think this song that I wrote is worth sharing with my uh, collaborators, you know? Like, that's not a good voice to listen to. Um, because, uh, yeah, uh, who, who is the one judging me? It's only me. Um, that's a long-winded answer, <laughs> how I keep from going to the dark side. Uh, the ever-evolving dark side. It's w it really is with you in some form or another for your whole life. Your whole I feel life. like once you get over one part of it, it pops up in another way, and you have to be creative about uh, yeah. and you gotta make how you deal with it. it too. There was this beautiful, uh, I did this workshop of... Um, uh, what's the Shakespeare play about the guy? That one. Uh, where <laughs> King Lear? It, it, maybe, it was the one that, that they never do that's really good. It's a comedy, but it doesn't seem like it. Um, uh, it'll come to me by the end of this podcast. Uh, but there's a song in this uh, workshop where they sing uh, on this island about how death is a friend of theirs. They make, a room for, uh, make room for death at their table. They know death is always with them and could take them at any moment. And uh, that, in a way, brings them peace, which I feel like that really stuck with me, that idea that, not that I should think about death all the time, but when I think about death, it makes me think, well, I'm alive now. What's getting in the way of me being as alive as I want to be? Like, because one day we're all gonna be dead, so it might just, might as well just be as alive as possible yeah. right now. Are there any concrete things that you go back to again and again when you're feeling like you're in that dark place or it's really it's really building up yeah I go back to the people who I love and who love me and uh, I share that feeling and very often I feel like whether it's my wife or um, you know my best friend Frankie or whoever <laughs> or my kid uh, very often talking it out and sort of naming the things I'm afraid of uh, very often dispels any power they have over me um, yeah, I feel like going back to people. Um, I've been and reading talking this, about it, talking about sharing it. it. Yeah, and uh, I've been deep into this um, uh, ancient Indian myth, the Ramayan, uh, which uh, I'm sure we'll talk about later. Mm -hmm. um, but this uh, uh, idea of um, these old texts that survive a long time sometimes survive because the human experience has been the same since we were around. You know, we have still not yet figured it out. But some of these great texts um, contain little uh, nuggets that I think about. Moby Dick, another great text, another great text that I come back to uh, as if it's um, a Bible. Like, uh, there's just, the whole world is in there. Um, so yeah, talking to other people and, um, yeah, for, forms of uh, media, of arts, I think. Yeah. So you mentioned Moby Dick, and Monik just came back from doing Dave Malloy's new adaptation of Moby Dick in Boston, 
uh, directed by Rachel Chavkin. And so that was the same team who did Natasha Pierre. And so you've been lucky enough to collaborate with the same um, duo of artists for many years because yeah, Natasha Pierre was over the course of five years, I think six we started years? that in 2012. Yeah. So that's a very particular experience. Instead of jumping from show to show as much, in recent years you've worked with the same collaborators. And I was curious what you've learned from watching their collaboration and maybe when you're working on Moby Dick this time, how your relationship to their process changed, how you were able to contribute in a different way or approach it in a different way. Yeah, I think when I was, when I was a younger actor, I sort of felt like there was a right way to do something and if I could just figure out the right way to do it, I would get the job or I would get a Tony, you know? Uh, but as I got older, and especially working with Dave and Rachel, there's no right way to do anything, and nobody has anything figured out beforehand. They require a team and a room full of people, people to figure it out, because the collective uh, conscience is bigger than any one person's imagination. So I feel like Dave and Rachel really function in a way where they hire great people, and then they ask them, uh, well, what is, what is interesting to you? You do you against the container that I've created, and we'll build a bigger container. And so I feel like the whole Comet ride, there were times where I really got to put my thumbprint on my character and the story and all the, uh, you know, all the things that that entails, and times where I really learned by following the wave of where everybody else is going. But that feeling of I'm going to put myself into the room 110% um, and not wait for anybody to tell me what to do, I really took into Moby Dick rehearsal. And uh, I mean, Dave and I had geeked out about the book a little before and had done some workshops. And uh, I had a deep passion for the book and for Dave and for Rachel. So I feel even, like even before Dave started this even project. Even before Dave started it. That's the whole reason I, uh, he was doing a workshop right around the time I got married that I couldn't do, but I got to see. And then uh, I was hanging out with him at a, a benefit for Rachel's company. And we started. Uh, geeking out about the book and about Ishmael and about the whole structure and stuff to the point where we were talking too loud and Chris Miliadia was singing this song up there and she was like, keep it down back there. <laughs> we got in big trouble. Mandy Patinkin yelled at us. He was right to do it. Um, but yeah, that, that feeling of um, I'm here to serve you. I'm here to serve this play, serve this character, serve this experience. And so I'm gonna bring my full humanity and my full knowledge, my full experience, my full capabilities, and just give you some ideas that you can edit, you know, as opposed to waiting for you to ask me to play right. the guitar on this number or do a dance on a coffin in this number. Or, or um, like self-editing before you even oh put it out yeah. into the room. Yeah, self-editing. That's one thing I, I in terms of, you know, not going to the dark side, I really learned from my kid, like, the self-edit is your biggest uh, enemy a lot of the time. <laughs> like, why would you, why would you edit yourself? Because uh, then nobody knows actually what you were thinking right. <laughs> the whole time. There was, there was one moment where in a rehearsal for Moby Dick, there was this big change to the ending, and I was like, oh, Rachel, this is really cool. What if I have some, like, psychological gesture here that is repeated uh, that we do in the beginning? And she was like, just do it. <laughs> Why are you asking me? Um, but yeah, it was a big lesson. Um, but yeah. Um, so I want to talk a little bit uh, about your self-generated projects, because I know that you've been a songwriter for many years now. 
And I find that a lot of times on the podcast, we talk a lot about um, making your own work because there are those times when other people are not giving you the jobs, people aren't giving you permission to do what you love to do. And I know that you're working on this big uh, song cycle right now as a, comp as a composer in a larger way than you ever have before. And I wanted to hear yeah. a little bit about how you started that project and what keeps you going when the end product is kind of daunting. It is very daunting. Um, so yeah, there's this epic called the Ramayan, one of India's big uh, seminal texts, kind of like, the, it's as ubiquitous as the Bible is here. Everybody knows the story. But nobody knows it here in America, and I just want to share that because it means a lot to me. Uh, so maybe it'll mean something to somebody else. Um, but yeah, it's very daunting. And I remember talking to Dave about it because he only takes on daunting right. texts. <laughs> I was like, how do you Larger do than it? life. Yeah, how do you deal with it? And he said this thing about um, somebody had told him that if you were going to build an ocean, you can't just put all the water in there. Uh, you have to put it in uh, a thimble full at a time. So just think about the thimble you're putting in at any given moment. And uh, me being uh, in the sort of stay-at-home parent uh, cycle right now, my time to work is Kaya's nap time. That's really the only reliable time I have where I don't have to pay a babysitter. Somewhat, somewhat reliable. <laughs> no, somewhat reliable for now, knock on wood. You know, she's going to grow up and not nap one day, maybe when she's in college. Um, but uh, so I have like, okay, she's asleep. I have like between an hour and a half and two and a half hours to summon the muse and write. <laughs> you know? It's a very difficult thing. But when that's your container, you sort of don't have a choice. And it's like, well, during this nap, I'm going to try and just write this chorus. Or I'm going to read this article or like um, take a shower. Um, so the container of having to work on this epic thing in such a minute series of sessions, I think has been challenging, but also a gift, because it's like, well, I don't have to think about what I'm going to do on the nap. I'm going to be doing the thing that I'm like always doing, trying to take over the world. <laughs> is, it, is it hard to not let those minute life things take over that time, to be like, I have a sink full of dishes, and I oh need to gosh, yeah. get lunch ready for tomorrow, and there suddenly times, the time is gone. Yeah, Stephanie sometimes is like, on the nap, could you? And I'm always like, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't. The, the house has to happen, too. But I've gotten better about like whatever I can do while she's awake. I do, so I can sort of like leave the nap as sort of sacrosanct, devoted time. And then sometimes I get an audition, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> for this audition during the nap. But, but it's a good problem to have, you know? Yeah, I feel course. like the thing of generating your own stuff is not just important when you don't have a job, but it's equally important when you do have a job because there are jobs that come to you because somebody else gives them to you, and there are jobs you make, and you can be doing both at the same time, and you probably should because when you have the job, somebody's paying you money, and all the time that you're not at the rehearsal or on the stage is paid office time, so why not use that time? Oh man, during Great Comet, I like <laughs> used every every intermission, every period between shows uh, to work on stuff. Um, I was doing a lot of animation at the time, and up up in Boston working on Moby Dick. Like you better believe, every second I had where Kaya was in New York and I was in Boston, I was like, what work can I do? Um, sometimes to an insane degree. Like don't go insane. But um, I feel like if you're, if you're keeping yourself busy and you're excited about what you're working on, um, then there's nobody who can take that away from you. Right. You, you don't have to wait around. 
Are there any resources that you found really helpful in this process, tackling this um, larger project and orchestration and all of these things? Yeah, definitely. You kind of taught yourself with? Yeah, um, research has been a big thing. It, it is a daunting thing to tackle an epic, so I read it all, and then I got another version and read that one too. And like just filling myself up with um, uh, research sort of helps in the moments when you're struggling with the minutia. So I feel mm -hmm. like that has helped. Research, even like going back to the fundamentals of like music theory, you know, like. Um, I can be learning something any second from my phone. It's this crazy age right now, you know, where I can, anything I want to learn, I can just go to YouTube, you know, or like uh, get, download a PDF or a, an app that tells me how to whatever. Um, but so I feel like listening to music, uh, reading, and like even if I'm not writing a song, even just practicing is helpful. Um, try and practice. Oh, come on in. Come on in. <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, l letting the um, letting the practice be part of the thing and not just waiting for the result, you know? Yeah, getting in the mine, trying to find some trying to find some salt. I, I think that's so inspiring and important because it's so easy now, especially with our phones and with social media to just let that time pass mm -hmm. and you're on the train or you're just Oh yeah. Minutes, hours are suddenly gone onto the internet. I after I saw that Octet, focus, I deleted Facebook and Twitter from my phone, and I got back a lot of time. Yeah, yeah, I'm you sure know? you did. Yeah, it's so easy because like even though I can use my phone to write a song, it's just so. I heard another songwriter talking about this, how he writes long form uh, on pen and paper, because just even in his brain, he knows it's possible to switch to s switch out of this, because it's such a struggle to generate something. It's very difficult. And every time you finish a song, you have to write another song, and you feel like, I don't remember how to write anything. Uh, and the doubt kicks in. That's when the dark side comes yeah. in, like, uh, y y that was a fluke. Every success so far has just been a fluke, and you're not gonna be able to repeat it. But so if I'm trying to write a song on my phone, or my computer, and there's even a fraction of my brain that's like, you know, you don't have to be working on this right now. You could just go <laughs> see if, you know, Trump's been impeached yet or whatever. Can you say that on a podcast these yes, days? Please. I don't know. Um, yeah, that, that it's like a, a little nagging uh, like kid in the corner being like, hey, I got this cotton candy. I know you're waiting for dinner, but like, you could just eat this cotton candy right now. So maybe I will. I'm really hungry. Um, so now, obviously, we want to insert an ad for Dave Malloy's Octet, which is oh all about yeah. internet addiction. That's so, true. and I, great piece. I just found out the soundtrack was on streaming on Amazon Music. So I was listening oh, to it. Oh, that's right. The big release is yeah. uh, tomorrow. That's an amazing, yeah. amazing piece as well. Yeah. Is there a lesson that you've learned in the last year that you're really proud of that you want to share with me? Could sure. be something small or something big. I keep coming back to this one moment to go back to Kaya. Um, we are watching one of her favorite shows, Bubble Guppies. Shout out for Bubble Guppies. Who loves Bubble Guppies? All right. Oh, hey, we got one hand. All right, all right. Um, Bubble Guppies is a little kid show, and it's interactive, so sometimes they'll ask a question, and uh, you're waiting for the toddler to respond. And uh, so there's this one episode where they're at a train, and <laughs> it's one of Kaya's favorite episodes, the train episode, great music. Uh, we say, okay, I need to go someplace where I can surf, which has a lot of water. Should I go to the forest, the beach, or the city? And uh, Kaya says, um, the city! 
And then they say, that's right, the ocean. And she says, the ocean. <laughs> and just to see how boldly she, and it would happen every time we watched the episode uh, for a while. She caught on eventually. But just the fact that she can boldly say her truth, that I think it's the city. And then they say, it, that's right, it's the ocean. I think it's the ocean. Like that bravery in being wrong and not being uh, having any judgment about being wrong is something I... Uh, try and hold on to, and in moments when I'm in a rehearsal or in an audition and I feel like I've been uh, sort of called out for being wrong in some way, I'm like, well, then I was wrong about that. And like, going to the ocean. Yeah, and why should I apologize? Like, <laughs> if I didn't know, well, what else was I going to say? Now I know, thank you for teaching me. Yeah. You know, I don't have to be like, oh, I'm a jerk, I didn't know it was the ocean. <laughs> I feel like that really stuck with me. And definitely I, that happened before Moby Dick. And there were many moments where I was like, here's a terrible idea. What if Ishmael's singing this song and he's playing some wailing electric guitar? You're correct. That's a terrible idea. I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Moving on. Yeah. Yeah, that's a wonderful lesson. Thank you yeah. for sharing that. How do you feel about sharing a little song Oh, sure. From your project? Yeah. You feel um, good about that? I'm happy to do it. Uh, so I'll give a little context um, so I'm working on this piece, and I think it's going to be, right now, a series of uh, like concept records, and the live portion will be uh, like the concert that the band would do for um, their record. So, uh, here, I'm going to put this guitar on. All right. I'm off mic right now. So the story of the Ramayan is uh, in uh, ancient India. There was this uh, guy, this holy man named Ravan, uh, who became so holy that the gods gave him this gift that he couldn't be killed. And then uh, in order to destroy Ravan and save the world, God had to come down to earth as a man, and he came down as this man named Ram in the kingdom of Ayodhya. And uh, this song is uh, towards the beginning of the piece, uh, Ram is about to be king, and uh, he is asked to say something before the crowd. And it's, it's really a very short song, um, because this is a very shortened version of this podcast, but I'll share it with you now. And it's about this uh, word in uh, um, India called dharma, which has no real translation in English, but it's something like Judy, it's something like the natural order, it's something like um, cosmic balance. But this is a very little uh, songlet from the Ramayan, uh, Ram's address to the crowd. Leo Walsh, as mic stand for human and, <coughs> and guitar. You can't see it right now, but she's doing a great job. I see the mountain Snow becomes the stream Becomes the river This is Dharma It matters not who carved the path Was it the water or the land 
the water shall return to ocean. This is Dharma. Oh, all my people, as your king, in word, thought, deed, I will put all before I. This is my dharma. Monik, thank you so much. Oh, sure. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank oh, you sure. all for being here for our 150th episode. Please check out The Compass on the Broadway Podcast Network. And yeah, we're so happy to be here. Have a great rest of your time at BroadwayCon. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me on. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.